Hello everyone, welcome back to the Addendum Podcast and today we are very happy to have Dr. Benoit Barbeau from UQAM who is a virologist here to talk about COVID and COVID vaccine with us. So Mr. Barbeau, how are you? I'm fine, and you? Yeah, I'm doing very well, thank you. So before we get into the topic of COVID in general, could you give us a bit more about your background and what, how does your expertise give you uh, knowledge to talk about COVID? Well, uh, my background is more into uh, retrovirology. So my lab studies has been studying for several years retroviruses such as HIV and uh, other viruses that are not as well known for uh, one being referred to as HTLV-1. Working also on human endogenous retroviruses, which are responsible for the placenta formation and development. So I've been mostly working on human retrovirology, but I've been very uh, obviously informed over the different types of viruses, different families. I've been working here and there on influenza virus or peace virus. Obviously, last year, as many other virologists or immunologists, uh, when the pandemic started, obviously, we got very much interested into what is going on, what type of virus that was, since it was a coronavirus. There was a few research team in Quebec as well as in Canada was working on coronaviruses. So we decided to pitch in and therefore contribute in the efforts to work to look at possible therapies, discoveries of the therapeutic agents and also a help in all the uh, development of the vaccine. So my background is generally speaking virology, and I also have a good background in immunology. So obviously, if you're working on viruses, you better be very knowledgeable in terms of uh, immunology. And I've been following obviously very closely in the last months and year, the development of vaccine and what has been shown to be effective in, in, in terms of phase clinical trials. Perfect. Then we'll move on directly to COVID. And before we move on to the topic of vaccine directly, I think I read one of your articles in the conversation. I believe you were talking about the origin of the virus. So for instance, there now is a lot of talk about a term of a U.S. Wuhan lab collaboration. Uh, so could you give us a bit more uh, information on the possible origin of the virus? Well, as you know, early on, uh, what most researchers and inquests quite normal that we were looking into that possibility because this is what in most cases happened. So early on, the best hypothesis uh, for the transmission of the virus or the uh, entrance of the virus to the immune population was just natural transmission. So jump a, a certain jump from in terms of species barrier from likely the bat to uh, humans or via an intermediary uh, species. And that has been studied and looked at most attentively because we had other examples in the past showing that the bat coronaviruses are very capable of making these jumps. However, there's been some gray zone in terms of what might actually also be considered as a accident from the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Specifically, since they were looking and studying bat uh, coronaviruses and making experiments in which they were doing what we call gain of function. So in a nutshell, what it is basically trying to accelerate the process of evolution of viruses from a species quickly adapted to another species. In that case, obviously, mammalian species and obviously human species. So therefore, doing these kind of experiments made certain individual and scientists consider the possibility of leakage, meaning that one of the users in the lab could have gotten become a super spreader and spread the virus. The initial form might have not been the same one as the one which is circulating, but nonetheless could have been good enough to start being transmitted in human and then allowing human to human transmission. Obviously, that possibility has been dismissed quite readily in the beginning. 
but since we have not found the species of origin of the potential of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, I think that that possibility has been revived recently. And we know it, there's some political connotation, obviously, but also since there's that gap of knowledge. And since obviously, I mean, Wuhan has a very big institute of virology where such experiments are being done. So there is a certain coincidence. And I think without necessarily saying that this is the most relevant and most convincing hypothesis, I think that it should not be quickly dismissed as it was earlier on. So, and especially knowing that that type of gain of function experiments are ongoing. And these obviously need very adequate biosafety level environments so that not only the users, but also citizens of the, the Institute are aware that every step involving security measures are being made to make sure that the virus, such experiments cannot spill into a, a pandemic. And this, I, I'm not saying that this is the, I, like I said, the hypothesis, which is the strongest. I think still believe that natural transmission is at the basis of the current pandemic. But nonetheless, we definitely need, just for the sake of, of you know, having a very clear mind in terms of how the virus got transmitted, we very need to have an in-depth investigation over the, uh, the type of experiments that have been ongoing in that institute, especially a few months before the pandemic had started. Had started. Perfect. Thank you. A, a very complete answer. So then let's move on to the topic of vaccine. I'll hand it to my friend here, Ming, uh, to ask more questions about the vaccine. Okay. So just to start things off, Professor, could you please explain to us what is a vaccine? So a vaccine basically is, the goal of a vaccine is really to educate the body so that it can actually be ready to be engaged very rapidly once it is exposed to the infectious agent. Obviously, in our case, it's the SARS-CoV-2. So instead of being naturally infected, because during infection, what happens is your body obviously reacts and it knows that it has been infected. It is in the presence of an infectious agent, which is only goal is to be replicating, reproducing, and transmitting itself to another host. But obviously, that comes a certain pressure to your body. So you have, obviously, impact in terms of diseases, in terms of also waste and energy. So your body is, has built an immune system. And therefore, when the immune system is being stimulated, elicited through that infection, you start actually uh, activating certain cell population, producing certain proteins, certain factors, and obviously antibodies, which will allow, first of all, to control the virus, if it is that infectious agent, and second of all, to build a certain memory, to remember that that infectious agent can reinfect you, and obviously you want to be better prepared once when you're infected. So basically, vaccines are making uh, the process a bit more quickly, but without the uh, disease and without the obviously secondary effect in the sense that you're exposed to parts of the viruses or the bacteria, whatever is you, whatever infection agent for which the vaccine has been developed, and you are uh, educating the immune system to build an immune response so that you are somehow protected against a future infection. And it's like basically mimicking the infection process, but in a safer manner. And also, in terms of how vaccine have developed, have been evolving in terms of the development, is to elicit the immune response in an even better matter, more intense and more adequate response toward infectious agent, 
by the vaccine. And so that actually you're better off in terms of protection if you ever encounter that agent. And that's basically what vaccine offers, not only in terms of protection, but in terms of efficiency in protection when you compare it to natural infection. I see. All right. So there, we know that there are several types of vaccines. Um, I hear that there's an mRNA vaccine. I hear that there was a vaccine that used an adenovirus as a vector. So could you tell us what differs between these vaccines and how do they decrease or increase each one's efficiency? Well, I don't think that each, they'll definitely not, first of all, in terms of your second question, I don't think that either will interfere with the other in terms of efficiency. It will rather be that each will be complementary in the sense that if you, and we're hearing a lot of that, I mean, I understand that, you know, there's some more intense uh, secondary effect when you're starting to mix different doses, uh, doses of different vaccines. But however, the likelihood will be, and some of the data seems to suggest this, that your response will be even better if you start a first dose with one vaccine and you go on with a second dose with a second vaccine. So I think that we should not consider interference, but a rather either equal response to a two doses of the same vaccine versus doses of different vaccine or even better response. The logic behind, I mean, the vaccines have been obviously around for several decades. We were using normally viruses which were attenuated or inactivated viruses. So basically, you were injecting to someone who was getting vaccinated the composition of the virus itself. Some of them were subunits, but mostly the traditional manner in which we were deriving vaccine was viruses which were not as efficient in um, replicating and causing diseases, those called attenuated, other which were completely inactivated by chemical processes or heat treatment and so on. So today's vaccines are actually different. So the goal of these vaccines is basically to allow someone who will be injected either by what we call an adenovirus vector, viral vector, or the mRNA vaccine, allow the person to produce one of the protein, one of the constituent of the virus, so that that protein being produced in your body will be detected by the immune system and the immune system will know that this protein is not part of you. So it is an outsider. And when the uh, immune system detects something which is not self, it builds up an immune response and therefore will start producing antibodies, will generate cells which will be activated, but also will remember, will have a certain memory toward that protein. The difference between the mRNA and the adenovirus is basically you are both injecting in certain different types of genetic information. One is RNA, and the RNA basically is encapsulated into a lipidic sphere. So basically, the RNA will allow you to produce that protein, but the way the RNA is being internalized in cells is because it is part of a lipidic sphere. So it's like a, a sphere which contains the RNA, which the cell will just gobble up. And the RNA is a, is a type of genetic information which allows the protein to be made. So therefore, your cell will produce the famous spike protein, which is at the surface of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, and therefore, that protein will be recognized as foreign, the immune response is simulated. The adenoviral vector 
is a different form. In this sense, you use a virus which contains DNA as the genetic information, but the D in terms of DNA, it contains genetic information which will again allow you specifically to produce that spike protein. So instead of using RNA, you're just using a virus which will just allow, will, will infect only in the first step. It will not replicate itself, but it will just infect cells and inject the, that genetic information which will allow the cells to produce once again the spike protein. So overall, the same process. The mechanism behind is different, but the goal is to allow your body, the cells in your body to produce the spike protein. Once the spike protein is produced in your cells, the body recognizes and therefore this is how you produce the immune response, which will be hopefully mimicking as much possible and be mostly protecting against a, a future infection by the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Thank you, Professor. I do also have another question. Go so ahead. recently we've heard of like a lot of variants, so like the British variant, the Indian variant, and recently, I believe there was also a Vietnamese variant, yep. right? Yep. So how do these variants emerge? And why are they considered like variants of COVID, but not an entirely different species of virus? And the second question would also be, why would current vaccines be less effective towards these COVID variants? That's a, that's a very important question. I think it, it is, we could talk by, for hours on that topic. And it is very the principal problem, actually. Uh, so just to briefly remind you, British variant or the UK variant and the uh, Indian variant, that nomenclature has, is being changed right now. So now we'll, you might hear in the, uh, in the media uh, things about the alpha variant, the beta variant, and so on. So they're trying to remove you know, the, the, uh, the name of a country associated to a variant so that we're more transparent, more neutral in terms of how we identify these variants. So the alpha variant is the UK variant and the delta variant is the Indian variant. And in between, you got the South African and Brazilian, which are better than gamma. So basically, viruses, their goal is actually to transmit themselves. I mean, these are non-living organisms which have genetic material and their only goal, they cannot reproduce on their own. They need to infect hosts, either bacteria, either uh, unicellular algae, plants, animals, and human, including human. And some viruses contain in their genetic information RNA. So their genome is RNA. And these viruses, which are RNA, are more prone to modification. So each time they will replicate, they will change, mutate. And that is a natural process. Basically, it is just a byproduct of replication, of reproduction. And in this way, it always changes and adapts itself. So perhaps it will eventually adapt itself to jump to another species, or it will protect itself from someone who got infected, but had an immune response against a certain variant of that virus, but might not be able to protect that individual from an infection from a variant, from a new virus. So it is in the natural process of viruses, these viruses, especially viruses we call RNA viruses because of their genetic material is RNA, to just change, mutate. And a lot of those changes will, be, will create defective viruses which will just disappear.
some of these changes will provide new properties to the viruses. And so therefore, we're calling variants, which viruses which contain a few changes or what we call mutation in different genes of the initial virus. That, and those which we call variants of concern are those which actually gathers mutation with properties which makes them more transmittable or perhaps more deadly or even perhaps more resistant to the actual vaccine that are being developed. So in that sense, the virus that we're talking about, the variants, remains SARS-CoV-2 virus because we have not changed drastically the genetic information of the virus. We, I mean, the virus has been evolving ever since the pandemic has started. There's been numerous variants that have been created. Some of them have disappeared. Some have been, have been outcompeted. But those which are more relevant and therefore more transmittable and therefore gather a certain momentum in terms of how much they are being transmitted and how much they are taking the place of other variants, those definitely are those that we are concerned about and we're focusing on. And like I said, they have 10 to 15 mutations. So these are not numerous mutations if you consider the size of the genome and making them still SARS-CoV-2 variants, but variants. So mom versions which are different from the initial virus, but not enough different so that they actually you start having a total different virus. In the sense that if one day there's a coronavirus in the bat, which again jump into the human species, that coronavirus will definitely have features which makes it, in terms of genetic information, uh, different enough from the SARS-CoV-2 and might eventually be called SARS-CoV-3 if it creates the same symptoms or another name. But these different viruses, therefore, are a form of species which can be distinguished. But once you have the same virus which mutates, that virus remains the same virus as the first one. So it's a SARS-CoV-2, but the number of mutations does not make it a different species. So species being, when we're talking about viruses as well as animal, plants, or bacterial species, we talk about species also. There's genuses, there's species, so we can categorize them in families and so on. But there remain the SARS-CoV-2. So that's a part of your answer. The other, which is more perplexing, is regards how these variants might actually evolve and become resistant. Those who are, which are circulating right now, either the uh, Delta or what we now term the Vietnamese, I've made modification. And if you take these viruses and you look exactly at what happens in the lab. So let's say you grow the virus in cell culture because you need cells to grow them in the lab and you expose them to antibodies, which comes from someone who got vaccinated. Sometimes what you can see is you, for a variant, you can detect that uh, the antibodies will be 20 times less efficient than they were for the original virus. And that's mostly done in the lab. And so therefore, some viruses will acquire modification in their spike protein. So just imagine the virus with the spike protein at the surface, and your antibodies are blocking that spike protein from interacting with the cells for infection to start. So if you have those variants with spike proteins which are different, therefore, in the lab, you might say, well, the antibodies that are produced in someone who is vaccinated is not as efficient. However, uh, so viruses in a vaccinated population might evolve in a certain way by acquiring mutation, like I said, randomly. And because 
most of the virus might be eliminated in, in vaccinated people. Some of them might eventually find a way to become more resistant to the protection offered by vaccine. But at this very moment, what is very encouraging is that looking at all the variants which are circulating, despite the fact that in the lab we've seen a reduction in terms of efficiency, there's different elements in the immune response which allows you to protect yourself from infection. And therefore, what we know is that for these variants, if you receive two doses, one dose might not be enough, but two doses, you'll be extremely well protected and enormously protected, even from for the Delta variant, known as the Indian, the formerly known as the Indian variant, against very severe symptoms and very well protected against just being symptomatic. That being said, it suggests that the vaccine that we have, regardless of the fact that it was developed from the initial virus, the virus of origin, remained extremely efficient in protecting us, mostly for against the symptoms, against these variants. And that is important to know because we hear a lot of variants which shows partial resistance, but as what we see in terms of the data coming out from the vaccination protocol and uh, around the world, we're seeing extremely good protection, even against those variants, which might be partially resistant. Just to say that whatever we see in the lab is definitely not a full test. I mean, not, not a complete assessment, should I say, of what occurs in someone who is vaccinated because antibodies is, are not the only element in an immune response against a virus. It was really interesting to hear, Professor. Thank you for that. So I'll pass it off to Jessica now. Yeah, so we talked about the new Vietnamese variant briefly earlier. Um, the Vietnamese variant is said to be a combination of the British and Indian variants. So what implications that does this have on the pandemic? Well, obviously, I mean, what we're seeing is that indeed are starting to accumulate modification from earlier variants. It's not the first time that we're hearing, you know, the, this mutation be occurring. And it, mostly those mix of mutations are always focused on the spike protein. If I just go back on the discussion over the variants, it is important to know that what we're focusing is on the spike. But there are other mutations in other genes, uh, other viral genes, therefore making viral proteins, which are different also. And we're talking less about these, but th these might be important. But going back to that issue with, uh, with, regarding the Vietnamese variant, which will eventually might be called Epsilon variants, whatever, I mean, as well as the Indian variants, these variants evolve once they've been created, once they've been generated, they have certain features which makes them either more probable of infecting cells because they're having properties on their spike protein which make them more adherent, adhesive to the cells via what we call the receptor. And there's other mutation which actually will probably make the virus more resistant to current antibodies, well, to antibodies produced by current vaccines. So in this process makes a likelihood that virus continuously evolves. So the variant might have a certain mutation which makes it more adhesive, and then that variant will be more transmitted, but will evolve into a variant with a subvariant or a version which will get that other mutation which will make it more personal, personal resistant. So in other words, 
what we're seeing is, and that has also been seen in the United States. We're hearing more or less about these variants, but there's been double, triple mutant variants. Always when you're talking about those mutants, they are focused on the um, spike protein. So these viruses are evolving, changing, and they are becoming new variants. So in terms of Vietnamese, just like in terms of the Delta variant, the Indian variant, they've just independently accumulated mutations. And likely what is happening is that those mutations makes them perhaps better suited to be more infectious individual who have been infected or vaccinated, but also more capable of, like I said, being transmitted. And most likely because the spike protein in its form is capable of better adhering to the receptor, which makes the cell being infected. The other possibility, and we know that in the lab, that's what happened, is that the antibodies, once you are generating these antibodies with the vaccine, will not be able to stick to the virus as well because of the change. But it is important to understand that this process has been ongoing already. I mean, we're talking about the Vietnamese variant, we're talking about the Indian variant. These are accumulating different viruses independently. But what is of interest is that these modifications happen very often to the same place. So a protein is made of amino acids, and each amino acid has a position. So we give them a number. For example, the spike protein has position 40804, 484, as normally a certain amino acid. And what we've seen in a lot of the variants, which seems to be more resistant, that amino acid is changed from a different amino acid and because of the mutation. And therefore, that changes allows probably the virus to be less capable of being neutralized by the antibody because the protein adopts a different conformation or because the antibody reacts to respond to that specific region. That being said, what is interesting is that there's a commonality in terms of mutations, in terms of changes around the world. So the variants of concern, the VOC, very often independently converge to the same changes. So making them more trans highly transmitted and or part more partially resistant to the antibodies, to the immune response. And that means that perhaps, and that would be perhaps too much wishful thinking or being too optimistic, but that perhaps indicate that at this point, the virus is evolving. I mean, ever since the pandemic has started, it has been continuously evolved, but as a certain limitation in terms of how much it can change. Because remember, like I said earlier, viruses, SARS-CoV-2, infect cells, produce progenies, and produce these progenies will be have mutation, not to the same extent, by the way, as influenza virus, but will change. A lot of them will be just completely disappeared because they have lost their capacity to infect cells. Some of them will be outcompeted because they're not as efficient as the virus, which are normally circulating. And some of them will acquire more important characteristics, which will make them more optimal for infection and therefore will outcompete other variant, other viruses. But at one point, if you allow a virus 
to infect cells, and but to become also fully resistant to the immune response, which is generated by a vaccine. The virus can find a way to produce variants, which will be resistant, totally resistant. But again, it has to make sure that the changes that happens to the virus, especially at the surface, will not impede on its capacity to infect cells and to reproduce. And so there's that equilibrium that we need to understand that we'll understand later as we move along in, in this pandemic, in this uh, vaccine campaign, which will allow us to determine how much the virus is flexible enough to each time adapt itself changes on the change itself on the surface and therefore perhaps forcing us always to have a, a new version of a vaccine that would need would be needed each year but that we don't know if that is the case but like i said there are certain conversions in terms of changes that we're seeing which allows us to determine that there's hot spots if i could say where the virus is capable of changing and allowing itself to adapt to in a partial resistant manner to vaccine. So whether it can explore other possibility in keeping itself being infectious, that is an open question that will be determined in the following months and years. Yeah. So as a following question, you kind of already briefly mentioned, uh, but due to the emergence of different variants, there is an increasing need for variant adapted vaccines. Mm -hmm. I know that I think Currently, Pfizer is thinking about making booster shots. Yep. So how do you think vaccine development should tackle this issue? So like the issue of uh, sure. variants? Well, well they, have, they have already tackled that issue in the sense that they're already testing it, producing it, but they're waiting. I mean, right now, I think that, okay, so a very important advantage in the current mRNA vaccine is that it is quickly adaptable. In a matter of weeks, you can actually derive a vaccine which will be very much in line to what the variants look like. Basically, is because you're doing everything without cells. I mean, the adenoviral vector needs cells for you to produce the viruses. The RNA is synthesized in vitro, so no need for cells. You're just making a gigantic, I don't know how, the size of how they can do those reactions by upscaling the condition. but Basically, you just change what we call the DNA template. You produce your RNA, and your RNA is basically a copy of your DNA, and it allows you to form an RNA which will produce a protein, which is exactly the same composition as the protein of a given variant. So in that matter, we are benefiting from that extremely efficient and rapid technology. And so right now, in terms of variants which are circulating, as I was mentioning, I think that the vaccine remains very efficient and extremely efficient. I mean, we have vaccines which are amazingly performant. We still don't know how long the protection will last once you receive the vaccine. And the question, obviously, right now is the variance. Uh, so I think there's right now a certain pause that are, is given to uh, the company. I know that uh, Moderna and Pfizer have been looking at testing RNA, which more adapted to certain variants. But the question is, those you can adapt your RNA and test them right now with the variants that we're having. But in the three, four, six months, what will be the variants that will be circulating? You don't know. And since they're extremely quick in terms of developing those new RNA and these new vaccines, and knowing that the variants are fairly well neutralized by the immune response, which is produced in someone who is vaccinated, 
I think it's reasonable to just wait and see, first of all, if that still holds true in, in the um, natural setting that is in the nat- human population in the current vaccine campaign and see whether there might be more concerning variants which will evolve and develop in different countries or even perhaps will control the entire world in which they will need to focus more and in w- for which there will be a need to quickly develop that new version of the vaccine and offer it as a booster shot, as a third dose. So the discussion has been ongoing for several months and the testing has been done. And I mean, the results are very convincing. The advantage is that basically those vaccines do not need to be, from my knowledge, you don't need to go through all those laborious phase clinical trials. They're just changing a few amino acids and basically you have the same composition, the same formulation. And so they would be ready to be provided to individual if ever we get to a point where one of the VOC, the variants of concern, being epsilon or whatever the next Greek letter will be, becomes an issue and as adapted in such a manner that it is extremely resistant to the immune response in someone who has been vaccinated. So it's an ongoing process. Remember, we start vaccinated at the end of last year and mostly at the beginning of the year. We're talking about a few months in terms of that vaccine rollout. In Canada, the situation is definitely more favorable than other countries. And these other countries are the places where actually these variants are probably more evolving. The more a country is confronted with a situation where there's a lot of transmission of the virus, the more likelihood you have these variants. And that's the case of the Delta variant, the Indian variant. So because a lot of people got infected, obviously, you came up with that unfortunate variant, which right now is starting to spread all around the world. That being said, like I said, the vaccine seems to be still very much working well with these variants. But it's important for pharmaceutical companies, but also government, to make sure to have a strong surveillance around the world and to uh, address whatever situation that might arise, which would be caused by one of those variants demonstrating new properties and more resistance toward the current vaccine. But like I said, this is right now in the process of discussion. Obviously, some people think that we'll need a third dose for sure and how it will be uh, generated, toward which variant it will be focused. Will it be possible also to make it more general in the sense that it might provide you a certain protection against the set of variants? That is still an open question. I think that the current weeks and months will allow us to determine how much this will be relevant and what will be the focus of these companies. But the good news is that we have good vaccine, extremely good vaccine, and the platform, the technological platform, which allows us to make them, and talk about the RNA vaccine, is flexible and rapid. And these are the best case scenario at the moment. I'm just going to say thank you for your answer. Perfect. Yeah, uh, I'll go ahead and ask uh, the next question. So actually, uh, still coming on to the topic of vaccines. So after seeing with uh, what happened with AstraZeneca and uh, Johnson Johnson's blood clotting, do you think there might be some other problems underlying other vaccines as well? Well, you can never be sure for certain. I don't want to scare anybody. I think that right now, once you have an issue with vaccine, it comes very quickly. So there's the typical symptoms after getting vaccinated. I mean, it's those who have got vaccinated, 
might have those mild uh, fatigue, headaches, uh, fever, uh, also muscular pain, and so on. There's a series of symptoms which are mild enough so that you don't require hospitalization. I was referring one of my answers to those mix and match protocol where you would take a dose from a vaccine and take a second dose from a second vaccine. And these type of protocol actually increase the likelihood that you'll have those relatively mild symptoms. Now, some of the complication might be more severe. Now, obviously, there's the general unfortunate reaction, allergic reaction that sometimes happen for people who get the vaccine. And again, this reaction is normally very quickly, very quickly happening. So that's why after receiving a vaccine, they're asking you to stay for 15, 20 minutes and wait before leaving. So these reactions can be spotted very quickly. And obviously, you need to be very fast in your intervention if that happens. But these are not only happening quickly, but also, second of all, fairly rare. And also, they're treatable. But right now, there's what we call PEG, polyethylene, polyethylene glycol in some of the uh, in the vaccines that actually can uh, people show certain uh, reaction in terms of polyethylene glycol. And then there are the other extremely rare cases. And these happen normally within weeks of injection of the vaccine. So we've heard about the case of the thrombocytopenia, what we call the VIT, which is vaccine-induced, where basically blood clots are being formed. And unfortunately, these blood clots can create immense problem for people depending on where they'll be they'll accumulate either in the brain or in the lungs. And therefore, that can be extremely severe and can lead to death. AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson have had these issues, but it happens in one in 10,000 to 20,000. We Initially, we were talking about one in 1,000. These frequency, which are extremely rare, vary, depends on which age population you're talking about. And also, is it the second dose, which makes it even more rare? Uh, so... This situation do happen, and obviously because they're extremely rare, in phase clinical 3, you cannot detect them. Because in phase clinical 3, we're talking about we can have 10 to 1,000 people, but if you talk about 1 in 1,000, you can definitely miss it. And right now, there's been also issues regarding myocarditis and pericarditis for young uh, individual from 12 to 18. Again, this is a, somewhat of a rare case, not as rare as uh, the thrombocytopenia, but has been occurring with the Pfizer uh, vaccine. And so therefore, that situation has again been detected, has been, or, and is treatable. Most, I mean, we're basically talking about either being under surveillance or treated with cortisone, anti-inflammatory. And this is also occurring in natural viral infection, not to the same frequency, but it can happen. So what I'm saying is that these you know, we, we've been going to phase clinical trial one, two, and three, and these have been conducted somewhat much more quickly than normal. But there's reason why we were able to make it happen quickly. It's not that we turned corner. It's because the investment were there, but also there was some kind of overlap between a phase clinical. But just saying that right now we're what we call phase clinical trial four. So the, the campaign has been launched. Obviously, people are being vaccinated by the millions. And what we're seeing, and there's extremely high level of surveillance in terms of trying to detect whether there is 
symptoms, condition, complication, which can be associated to a certain vaccine. And it's extremely meticulous in terms of how much we want to make sure that there's no such adverse effect. So I cannot foresee any type of complication right now in the long run. Normally, like I said, reactions and complications are in vaccine. And that is also, if you go back numerous decades ago, that we've been using vaccine, those complications do not occur after 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, and so on, or even one or two years. They happen in within a matter of weeks normally. And that's what we know. And so in the long run, I don't think that there'll be any complication which is associated to vaccine. I cannot say 100% sure because certainty, you cannot be certain of anything. But as far as we know in terms of the technology itself and as what we know in terms of vaccine development and vaccine use in the, in this, in the human history, uh, in medical history, I think that that should not happen. But after a few weeks after getting vaccine, there might be very rare condition that might happen. And we need to be very careful in making sure that we have not missed out on one of these conditions. And what you've been hearing recently what we refer to as the um, prothrombosic or something like that, thrombocytopenia, which is induced by vaccine, and also as myocarditis, is in a demonstration that these situations can happen. They are very rare. But that means also that the protocol and the surveillance process is well in place and active and doing its job in that whatever extremely rare condition you're detecting, we can see them and spot them. And if there's a case associated to a given vaccine, as just a, an example, the thrombocytopenia, it, it was initially called VIPIT or vaccine-induced prothrombocytic immune um, thrombocytopenia, and now it's becoming the VITT. Uh, it took a matter of weeks before that association has been made. And also before, there's been publication in which the mechanism has been strongly suggested. So very quickly, we were able to spot that association to understand the mechanism. And by understanding the mechanism also, to better detect people who are predisposed to that complication and to treat them. I'm not saying that everybody, unfortunately, was treated fast enough so that there was no I mean, there would be obviously a very unfortunate number of people who died. But the process in which we have, the association has been made to the current situation in which we can actually detect and also do conduct blood analysis to know exactly if that person is showing evidence of thrombocytopenia has been extremely quick. And that's, I think, the approach or the way that we should see the situation. We have a lot of doses which are being distributed. There's still possible unknown in terms of complication, but there is a strong incentive from the governments around the world to make sure that there's no situation that are left unchecked. So the most recent one is myocarditis. It's relevant mostly to your age, but again, that has been quickly detected and I would say even well treated right now. In terms of clinical perspective, the tools are there 
and they can be very well managed. Most of the people, most of the kids are within weeks, not, they don't need hospitalization. And those who get hospitalized, most of them are treated and very efficiently treated. So I think we can rest assured. But in conclusion, I think that we can never be, I mean, surveillance needs to be there at all time since we're dealing with a very large vaccine campaign and we need to be very much aware of what might be associated to, to vaccine. But uh, the further you are from the moment that you're vaccinated, the less likely that you'll have any complication of whatever nature that might be associated to this vaccine. Okay. Um, uh, backing off uh, from the side effect with AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson and other side effects. So before all that happened, before we knew of those side effects. So coming back to the question of uh, variants, actually. So uh, I believe AstraZeneca was not very effective against the South African variant of the coronavirus. And back uh, just a couple of months ago, you were saying that Johnson Johnson being a one-dose vaccine could be a game-changer in a way. So, however, now now you're saying that um, perhaps two-dose from two different companies might be more effective in protection against vaccines. So do you think that um, we should still go for like a one-dose to solve everything vaccine, or should we try to mix and match them? I think that you need to consider all possibilities. So you're right. Johnson & Johnson was a game changer in the sense that they were proposing a one-dose protocol. Now, that being said, you have to understand that even though they were proposing a one-dose, they were already testing a two-dose protocol. So because the one-dose was giving you a certain efficiency, very high, but in terms of very important, severe symptoms of COVID-19, they were not as efficient as AstraZeneca Pfizer and Moderna. So they were, I think, around 80%, while the others were just close to 100%, including AstraZeneca. And we're talking about severe symptoms, not symptoms in general. And looking at AstraZeneca, it's true that, I mean, they've been definitely the unfortunate, not loser, but definitely not the one which gained as much momentum as the others. One of their issues was the South African variant. However, you have to remember that the other previous vaccine had not been tested when variants were around. So that was an, an issue. The second thing is, I believe that the protocol that was being used in South Africa for the AstraZeneca vaccine was a four-week or three-week protocol. And later they showed that if you extend that, the delay between the first and second dose going up to three months, you improve very importantly the effectiveness of your vaccine. So that is also something that needs to be considered. Now, the question is, what should we do in terms of vaccine use? Uh, I think that, as you know, AstraZeneca and Johnson Johnson are definitely not the most favorite vaccine that are being used. We're definitely focusing more on Pfizer and Moderna. In terms of mix and match, it all also depends on the results. I mean, there's data from the Spain studies, and I think that the UK study should come out. I'm not sure if the data had come out up to now, but we're waiting for the data to see whether there's improvement or at least an equivalent efficiency in terms of vaccine protection offered by doses from different companies versus the more standard protocols. So that we will need to have firm data showing how much mix and match works. If it works better or if it works equivalent, that remains to be determined. But I think that all the different version, all the different vaccine formulas should be kept at this moment. Johnson & Johnson, like you mentioned, is important because it's a one dose. 
Now, there's obviously a, the same issue as AstraZeneca, and it's definitely dependent on the mode of technology being reused. So you're using an adenovirus. Seems like probably, obviously the adenovirus is uh, inducing an immune response, which is definitely provoking that immune response, autoimmune response against the platelet, which are the cells which are responsible for controlling coagulation, therefore the link between blood clot. So these companies are very extremely also interested in understanding what's the problem behind what's going on. And also one of the enigma is, are there any similar situation in Russia with their Sputnik V vaccine, which also was developed with adenovirus and that we're not seeing much, we're not hearing much about what's the situation with that vaccine, whether it's a question of transparency or whether it's a question that whatever protocol they have with the different adenovirus from AstraZeneca makes it less subject to those complications. I mean, this is still an open question. But learning more on how these adenovirus vectors are inducing this complication will allow those companies perhaps to change the type of adenovirus they're using, modify the structure, or making less probable of having a very important secondary effect. So right now, in terms of vaccine campaign, we're lucky, we're fortunate to have two companies, Moderna and Pfizer, who are mass producing vaccine. As long as they can continue in being able to offer the needed supply at the international level, and that there's no drawback in terms of production, in terms of quality control, then we're good. As long also as there's no unknown secondary complication that happens, we're also okay. But right now what we're seeing is that despite the myocarditis that has been associated mostly to young people, I think those those uh, technologies are working well. But I wouldn't necessarily discard Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca because w whatever might come out in terms of supplies, in terms of unknown situation, it's an advantage to have other types of vaccines in case the complex situation happens and we're in, in a, a moment where those companies cannot supply us with another vaccine. So in terms of supply, we're good. We're doing fine. We can continue working with those vaccines. In terms of AstraZeneca and Johnson & Johnson, there's some development that needs to be done. Although, like I said, the complications are not as severe. And whether we should also continue working on these types of vaccines because of the mix and match, especially with AstraZeneca, the mix and match protocol, which might provide us a certain increase in terms of efficiency, that also needs to be taken into consideration. So as an answer, I think there's no right answer. I think that we need to continue the vaccine campaign with what we have, with the knowledge we have. I think that we should also keep in mind that those other vaccines, although despite their the complications associated with these vaccines, might also be helpful in terms of mix and match protocol, or even also in the one-dose protocol that Johnson & Johnson is proposing. As a final addition to the answer, remember that there's other formulation, other types of vaccine which are under development. I think there's over, over 100 vaccines which are being tested at different clinical phase trial one, two, and three. The problem is getting the individuals in certain in enough number which have not been vaccinated for you to do your phase clinical trial three, which might become a problem. In Quebec, we have Medicago who has started clinical trial three which is a different technology based on what we call viral-like particle produced in plants. 
you have other vaccines which are being produced, which are viruses which have an attenuated form. That is, if I believe, was finishing phase clinical three. And you get other types of vaccines, those which are DNA-based, inactivated viruses. So there's a plethora of different type of vaccines that are out there. And that could eventually also offers us alternative solutions. And that should never be discarded, even though we're having such a high efficiency with the current vaccines. So coming back to the question of side effects. So actually, Jessica asked this question. So I will hand it off to Jess. Yeah, so our podcast mainly targets like young adults, teenagers. And I just thought that this question was really relevant. Um, so recently, the government has been encouraging teenagers and young adults to get vaccinated. A lot of healthy young adults are skeptical um, because, first of all, they, they're scared of like the long-term effects. But also, um, they think that because they're healthy, they're not as uh, vulnerable as older people. And so regardless, is it necessary for them to get vaccinated and why? That's a very important question. And uh, I can even say that there was a letter from a number of scientists and clinicians who were arguing whether we should vaccinate teenagers and young adults uh, since they are very less prone to the most important symptoms in COVID-19. I think that the answer is pretty much broad in terms of, first of all, what we're facing right now is a very unexpected and uh, once-in-a-lifetime, hopefully, type of pandemic. It, the virus transmits itself throughout the population. You're young, healthy, but you'll get infected if uh, you're, you have a possibility of getting infected by the virus. You might not, a lot of people will not suffer major symptoms, but some people do. Example, people who are of a certain age, have a certain other uh, other diseases, so comorbidity effect. And you, like I said, regardless of you're not, of you not being, people not being symptomatic, you might be infected and also contagious. So if a strong part of the population is not vaccinated, and we have always have that 75% um, uh, which is, is in our mind in terms of what we call the uh, herd, herd um, immunity, um, which could be higher also actually because of the variants. Uh, but th- what will happen is that the virus will continue to circulate. And the more you let it circulate and transmit, the more it will mutate. And as I was referring earlier on, in a vaccinated, partly vaccinated population, if you let the virus circulate, it will eventually become probably depending on how flexible it is, uh, resistant to va- uh, to uh, the vaccine because you let it transmit, you let it replicate, you'll let it reproduce, and therefore the more it transmits itself, the more mutation it, it is capable of creating, and therefore eventually you'll have the magic form, the magic formulation uh, formula for that vir- that variant to to completely uh, being uh, uh, to counteract or to uh, be uh, not responsive to the um, to the immune response of vaccinated people. So that's the first part of the of the answer. You, it's not uh, only uh, uh, be a gesture that you're making for yourself. You're making it as a collective uh, decision, and you want to protect people that surround you who will not necessarily be as 
um, re well responsive to the infection and would be more prone to complete complicated um, symptoms. And that being said, the more people were being infected and have severe symptoms, the more people get hospitalized, the more impact you have on your health system. And therefore, it's not only people who are have the symptoms upon infection that are being are suffering because these individual remains a number of days or weeks in the hospital but you also have a major impact over other people who will need surgery who will need treatment and so on so you need to look at the more general picture the other part of the answer is regardless of the fact that we know that young people are not necessarily um, show as symptomatic as other individual they are situation and that where a number of young people do develop strong symptoms of the of COVID-19 and some of them are become long hours so therefore the symptoms can happen and can uh, last for a number of weeks so uh, I think that the vaccine itself, we're not talking about a vaccine which is, or vaccines which are 30% effective. We're talking about vaccines which are extremely effective in, in blocking those uh, or, or, or making those symptoms much less important, important mostly to people who are older. But also, as we know right now, making you all people will get vaccinated less contagious if they're infected so in that regard i think that it is important to make sure that as a young adult as a teenager the you know that the vaccine will also make you less of a spreader of the virus and less pro make yourself less prone to be eventually a super spreader normally i would say that if you're asymptomatic you're probably less contagious but doesn't mean that you're not contagious at all so the vaccine helps in that matter and teenager as well as young adults as well as old 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 adults elderly are all looking forward to have a great summer and hopefully to return in class in september and fall in condition which as are as normal as possible but if we go back in fall and we have a fourth wave because there will be a fourth wave most likely and it will be different amplitude so if we're not careful if we're not enough vaccinated the virus if it keeps on being transmitted in the population especially those variants that might actually makes us go back to a very less interesting situation in which we would again be stuck on in our place having online learning which we all did I mean I think it showed that we had certain flexibility but it showed also that we were need we need person-to-person -person contact I mean obviously you're like me and you obviously talking to your friends and you know going out it's something which is incredible we're starting to see it right now but if we're not careful vaccination is one thing you need you need to get as many people vaccinated but you also need the virus to be spreading as less as possible but if you have those two conditions and you keep 
on controlling the transmission by vaccination by measures. That will mean that the, the lookout, what will be the lookout for the fall, will be much more interesting than if we're not being taken in consideration whatever age group that is, not taking in consideration the capacity of the virus to transmit itself and to lead to what might be a fourth wave, which will again bring us back to online learning, which is something that we have adapted and also uh, limited person to person uh, contact. And I think that just for the sake of being social animals, I think that's something that should be considered. But remember, you people, whatever age group, you're talking about the 12, 18, but the worst, the group which are more affected is, is seems to be lagging behind in terms of vaccination is that from the 18 to 39 year old, I mean, these are the ones which are actually less vaccinated, even the 12 to 18. And so I think that the situation occurs at many levels. And, and just knowing that this is the key out of the pandemic and to a no, more normal life uh, re is, I think, should be on people's mind. And right now in 2021, we have vaccines which are extremely good, secure enough. We have certain number of possibilities. In 2020, we couldn't have expected any such um, uh, efficient tools to combat the pandemic. And we have them. So I think that it should be important for people to understand that despite the pros and cons, the, some of the information that are being uh, uh, shared in throughout the social media, uh, vaccination is an important uh, element for us to, to uh, control the pandemic and get back to what we want to have that is a more normal life. Well, thank you for the answer. It was uh, very, very informative uh, for myself and I believe for our young listeners as well. Uh, speaking about uh, preventive measures, so you said that being vaccinated was one part of coming back to a, a normal life and the other part was preventing the spread of the virus. So for people who has been vaccinated, should, should they still wear a mask? That's a, a question that we always want to ask. Ah, that's a very important question. You are vaccinated. You are definitely in a much better position than if you're not vaccinated. Remember, some people who are vaccinated will not necessarily have a, the average type of immune response. For certain reasons, some people will definitely not be as protected. We've seen studies showing that, I mean, there's what we call breakthrough. So uh, you're vaccinated, but unfortunately, you're getting infected, and unfortunately, you'll get symptoms. That is not the general population. The data shows otherwise in general, but there are those outliers. And obviously, there's multiple body of potential explanation, but it will happen. So those people will get infected, will be possibly contagious. And right now what we're having is we have just above 10%. I think we have the second dose for people who got second, I think is more than the 14 or 16% right now in Canada. We have a very high percentage in terms of the first dose, but there's a lot of people out there who are not fully vaccinated. And just for that reason, we need to continue in maintaining those measures. The mask itself, the reason why we're using it is because since last year, it has shown some extremely 
the high level efficiency of maintaining the virus and allowing people to not get infected. So we're going to keep this measure. I think that we need to keep it as long as we're not getting that three-quarter percentage of fully vaccinated people. But as you know, the Quebec government is on a plan where the confinement is starting to go at a very fast pace. Uh, so restaurants are being open, and then your gathering will be larger. Regions are transforming themselves from orange to yellow zone, and then you have green zone, and uh, and then eventually perhaps those those colors will disappear, but they'll be maintained in case we need them again. But those regulations need to be in place, like I said, because even if you're vaccinated, there's a possibility that you could still infect be infected. Now, if only 5 to 10% or 20% of people have a risk to be infected or to be contagious, and that's the most important part, I think, contagiousness, you are, and there's, like I said, 70 or 80% or 85% of people who still have not obtained their two-dose vaccine, those people are definitely more prone to be infected, especially with the variant. So we need to go cautiously, step by step. We need to deconfine and make sure that people stick to the measures and always in between those changes, those phases, look at what's happening in terms of infected number of infected cases. So you need to make a very be vigilant and make those assessments each time you start making those changes. If you're fully vaccinated, I mean, you, you, you might be infected, but if you're infected, you'll probably much less likely to be contagious and much, 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 much less susceptible to show symptoms but you could be contagious. I mean, there's a small percentage of people who will be. And just for that, given that the full vaccination has been given to a certain small part of the population, we still have to maintain those measures. Measures being indoor, limiting the number of people from different residents, indoor as much as possible in certain in public spaces, maintaining the mask. And the mask will remain for a certain while. And even in the summer, after the summer, there might be a situation where the mass will be required. Even if we get that 74, 75% success rate in terms of vaccine rollout. I mean, if you're in a metro or in a bus and people are crowded, just from the fact that the virus can still be maintained and transmitted at a very low level because everybody's vaccinated, but nonetheless, you still have that possibility in overcrowded areas with poor ventilation and very closed area, I think that this is the context where you could actually definitely need to maintain that type of measures. But we're going a very smooth and I would say rapid kind of deconfinement protocol. We just need to, as a vaccine, fully vaccinated person, which I will be today, but I'll have to wait 14 days before obviously having that kick, that second dose being fully optimal. I have, still have to protect people who are not fully vaccinated. And again, it's more like a collective perspective that we need to take in that regard. Okay, understood. And uh, speaking about vaccination and people sort of wanting to take their mask off and getting within two meters with each other. So finally, some question about vaccine hesitancy and um, the media. Yeah. So uh, for example, we before I believe in the beginning of the pandemic, we were comparing COVID-19 a lot to the past, uh, the Spanish flu in, uh, after the First World War. Uh, so back then, however, the uh, so the main presenter of uh, information was through the media. 
I believe this is still the case with COVID-19, but however, we also have uh, social media platforms. And now we start to see some kind of conspiracy theories surrounding COVID vaccines, for example, surrounding Bill Gates implementing chips inside <laughs> vaccines. So how does uh, the conspiracy theories or other misinformation or information on the internet um, impact uh, vaccine hesitancy? It's, uh, well, I see, I'm that's outside of my expertise, but obviously, it. I mean, every all of that, kind of information can have an impact on people who are hesitant in in terms of getting vaccinated. If you're hesitant, that means obviously you have concerns for your health. And whatever might be out there, that will definitely make a bigger impact on yourself than if you're not hesitant, obviously. I would, unfortunately, there's too many uh, sources which are claimed to be reliable sources, which come up with all those interesting and fascinating theories in which you like either Bill Gates or uh, China having created a virus intentionally and therefore just trying to take control of the world. I mean, there's it comes in all different colors and shapes. And I think that as, and I've talked to people who are we need not to marginalize those people. We need not to polarize the discussion. We need to discuss. And that is social media brings something which is different from 100 years ago, where people were discussing, were talking at different points of view, but we're discussing and having form of discussion. We need to have that. Social media allows some groups to build up on their own ideas and to foment a certain way of thinking, which are all shared by those people. And therefore, whatever you can filter whatever information you want to make, make yourself more comfortable with your idea, because that information came out from outside and, and also strengthen your concerns and therefore makes you more as I think we need to have a more open discussion. And I believe that it's up to the government to have those forum of discussion of allowing people who are hesitant not to feel marginalized, criticized, but allow them to ask their questions and also share the concern and why they're concerned and what sources are they using to say, for example, the RNA vaccine will uh, change your genome and you, you know, will modify your DNA, which is unfortunately something which is still lingering on and which is totally false. I mean, this is not something that is happening in terms of te that technology. A and what I'm saying is, so definitely social media, because of its structure, because of its the rapidity at which it's, it's being spread, and it can spread disinformation, but also how much you can create those groups. And, you know, you have groups of people who are really hesitant and really building up on that, that hesitancy. It doesn't help. There are also those, uh, those people who are more conspirationist theory type of individual that you'll probably never be able to convince or to discuss with. And these people actually would respond the same way to whatever vaccine that might be out there. There's people who are not vaccinated uh, or did not vaccinate their children because whatever their belief. And some of them might be hesitancy, but uh, some also is a lot about all those theories which have been shared through social media. So, so there's a certain group of people who are not getting vaccinated, will never get vaccinated, you'll not be able to convince. 
because I think that they're, they're too much ingrained in those theories. But there's that part of the population which are hesitant, and they have a right to be hesitant in the sense that they have a right to have their concern. doesn't mean that I, mean, I would agree with what they're saying. But what I'm saying is that they have a right to ask the question. They have a right not to ask the question among themselves, but also to be heard and also to be reassured if reassurance is needed. And that's probably one of the key parts in which we will get to more people to be vaccinated in those groups. And it's not by criticizing them or polarizing the discussion and marginalizing those people. It's by an open discussion and allowing them without feeling criticized to voice out their concerns. And that is something that I think is needed and definitely the government should be more willing to provide for those people who are interested in getting their, the vaccine. Perfect. Well, thank you. A very complete answer. And uh, with that, I, I believe we'll finish it off. It, it's, um, I think it's time and uh, your answers are very, very complete and very informative. So there's no longer need for us to any, ask any other questions. So again, thank you for coming. It was a pleasure talking to you. It's my pleasure. And, and I really, I'm very happy that you guys are, are creating those podcasts. I think it's very important. And like I said, I think that, you know, you, are, you voiced out some of the concerns of your friends. And I think that's exactly also a kind of a type of, of thing that should be added to the discussion. And I think it's a very good idea that you guys have. And I hope that I, my answer will provide uh, answers to all the questions. And also, if there's any concerns, hopefully they, people will be more reassured. But I mean, if there's any issues, I would be glad also to answer your question by email if, if there's a need. Perfect. Then uh, I will drop your email in the link. Uh, or the description to this podcast so students can contact you. Perfect. Sounds perfect. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you. Well, I guess uh, this is goodbye. I will let me and just say goodbye to you and thank you as well. Thank yeah. you very much. And I, I am just thanking you for your question and your time. Very interesting. And I wish you a very nice and as normal as possible summer. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you for taking bye -bye. time to answer Take our care. questions. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Thank you everyone for tuning to listen. I hope you enjoy listening to this episode as much as we did during the interview. If you liked this episode, learned something, or just want to help out a bunch of students, please leave a review, write a comment, and share this on social media. If you are listening to this on YouTube, please subscribe and write to us in the comments. All the books and other resources recommended by the interviewee are in the podcast description slash video description depending on your platform. And depending on when you see this, you might be able to use our affiliate link to purchase them. The Marianopolis Addendum podcast is actively seeking local sponsors here in Montreal. So if you are interested, please contact us at the email linked in the description. All the profit generated by this podcast will go back to fund our club's activity. If we have any surplus, they will be donated at the end of every month to a local charity. This episode was edited by Lucy Ann. And the artwork is done by Camilla Huang. The producers and guests associated with this episode may express their opinion, but this podcast does not support any political parties. We only aim to bring different perspectives on different issues through the free exchange of opinions and ideas. We look forward to seeing you at our next broadcast. Cheers!